Hi, this is Sean Fetsky, Editor-in-Chief of Medical Product Outsourcing Magazine, and I'm here once again for another episode of Mike on MedTech. Joining me, as always, Mike Drews, President of Vascular Sciences. Mike, how are you? I'm well, thank you, Sean. How are you? Very, very well. Uh, so today we're going to continue with a discussion that we've, uh, that's been taking place, uh, and that is our uh, discussion over whether or not we need a 483 for pre-stubs. Uh, specifically, it's in reference to a guidance that came out earlier this year from the FDA, non-binding feedback after certain FDA inspections of device establishments. Uh, if you haven't listened to part one of this, then you should definitely do that now. That covered uh, an introduction to what was, uh, what was new in the guidance, uh, why the FDA is doing more inspections, the goal of the guidance and the program, uh, the difference between a 483 and a warning letter, uh, the uh, process described in the guidance, and how the FDA is responding to the guidance. So those were all covered in part one. Uh, before we continue with part two, though, I'd like to give Mike, uh, I'd like to give you an opportunity if there's anything that you'd like to emphasize from part one that, you know, is critical or, or should be reminded of uh, for anyone who listened already, but uh, before we get going with part two. Well, thanks, Sean, as always, for the opportunity to uh, have this discussion. Just a small um, correction of what you said in the intro. I think you inadvertently said this was a 483 for pre-subs, um, and really what it is, as I like to describe it, it's a pre-sub for 483s. So uh, thanks, a 483 for... You're welcome. And actually, it's an interest, it's, an, it's a very interesting idea of 483 for pre-subs, but that's not what we're talking about here. <laughs> getting a getting a finding on a pre-sub. Believe me, I think some of them would, would 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 some companies would deserve it. But anyway, in a nutshell, just just very very quickly to recap uh, in a little bit more detail what we talked about. So. This is, a, this is a, a guidance that recently came out, very short guidance, only about eight pages, that basically creates a mechanism. A company upon uh, a manufacturing inspection gets a finding from the FDA in the form of a 483. This provides a mechanism for the company and the FDA to work together to resolve whatever that finding might be. So in a nutshell, the company undergoes an inspection. They receive a 483. Uh, the company analyzes the situation. They propose a corrective action back to the FDA, a solution. The company submits that to the FDA. Um, FDA responds with this non-binding feedback. Basically, FDA can respond in one of three ways. They can say if the correction is appropriate, Im appropriately implemented, then it appears to be adequate or they can say it's partially adequate, or they can say that it's inadequate. Um, so, so that's sort of uh, a, a very high-level recap of, of this new process, which is what we'll talk about in a moment, Sean. It's really not that new. But anyway, let's, let's continue. Great. Well, that's a, that's a perfect lead-in to what was going to be uh, the next topic for our discussion, which was uh, what is the timeline uh, for that response for the company's interaction with the FDA uh, on, those, on those 483s? Good question, Sean. Now, the regulation says that the company needs to submit their corrective action in a timely manner. What the heck does timely matter mean? Well, that's up to interpretation. FDA's interpretation is within 15 business days. And once they receive your proposed solution, FDA intends to, to provide 
this non-binding feedback within 45 calendar days after the first 15 business days. Now, don't even get me started about the fact that FDA wants this information in 15 days, and yet they're going to take 45 days to get back to me on it. That's a topic of a different discussion. But most importantly, Sean, I think you know me well enough, I don't like regulatory absolutes. I think it makes right. absolutely no sense. For example, if the product is on the market already and the concern is very significant, in other words, let's say that there's a concern about safety of the device relating to the manufacturing process and there's the potential for harm to, to patients um, you know, right now who have this device out in the field. In that particular case, you know, time is certainly of the essence and it needs to be you know, in you know, a, a small number of days or maybe even hours where we need to address this. On the other hand, remember one of the things I mentioned, Sean, in our first part of this conversation, some devices, for example, like PMA devices, require pre-market inspections. Right. So in that particular case, if FDA has a finding, why the heck does the company have to get to the, back to the FDA in any period of time because the product is not even on the market yet? Right. So in my opinion, you know, it's good to use these numbers as guidelines, but we have to apply a little common sense. But according to the regulation and the guidance, uh, FDA is interpreting timely matter as the company needs to make this, um, submit this response within 15 business days, and then following that, FDA intends to provide this non-binding feedback within 45, day, 45 calendar days after that. Okay, good to know. Uh, so the, uh, the 43s that we're, we're discussing, or, or just in general 43s, uh, is this guidance uh, – you know, meant to, is this across the board? Is this every 43 or is this just certain, certain 43s? What's the, what's the coverage area? Yeah, good question. Regrettably, according to the guidance, this does not apply to all 43s or, as you just said, 43s across the board. And this is where uh, I strongly disagree with FDA because this should be applicable to all 483s. Um, but FDA identifies four areas that these 483s have to fit into. It either has to involve a uh, public health priority, it has to implicate systemic or major actions, it needs to relate to an emerging safety issue like the one that I just mentioned a moment ago, um, or it applies to serious 483 observations that might lead to a warning letter later. Remember, as we talked about in the first part of our uh, discussion, Sean, not all 483s lead to warning letters, only the right. ones that are most severe. So I understand, in a sense, because of limited resources, uh, FDA wants to triage these. We don't want to, you know, waste FDA's time. But I said just yesterday in a call to the FDA, you know, we were trying to do something, and they said, well, we have limited resources. And I said, you know what, I understand that. The company has limited resources as well. So I don't, you know, buy this game of, you know, saying that we can't do this just because we have limited resources. Another thing that's interesting to note, Sean, in the guidance it says FDA is not obligated to respond to requests not meeting one of the, the, the criteria that I just mentioned above. In other words, it's not serious. I personally think that's bad form. I think that if a company sends something to the FDA, FDA should have an obligation, maybe not regulatory obligation, but let's just say a, 
humanitarian obligation, if you will, to respond to the company in some way, even if it's a response like, well, this is not something that we can look at right now or, or some kind of a response, but that's just sort of a, of a personal comment. But uh, bottom line, Sean, regrettably, this, this process does not apply to all 483s across the board. Nonetheless, my advice to companies would be even if you have a 483 that doesn't easily fit into one of these existing buckets, still make, make use of this process anyway because I have a feeling most of the folks at FDA are going to want to be cooperative and work together. And, um, you know, so it's the adage, Sean, better to ask forgiveness than permission. Right, right. And I will say, uh, uh, just uh, based on, on your comments on the, uh, you know, on that, to that response or to that question, if, uh, if there were, if it did apply to all 483s, boy, that discrepancy of 15-day timeline, 15 business day to 45 calendar day discrepancy, it would, it would blow that out of the water. You'd really have, have an issue with the FDA uh, because I, I would think we'd be looking at you know, maybe 15 business days, 90 calendar days if it was every 43 across the board. Perhaps so. It's just like the pre-sub. You know, some companies choose to use the pre-sub process, others do not. Right, and because right. of the increasing, process, um, increasing um, popularity of the pre-sub, uh, you know, that is happening. So that could happen here too. You're right. Right. All right. Well, we've been talking all this time about the, the title, the, the guidance, and how, you know, how crystal clear it is, not in the mud at all. Uh, the first <laughs> word of the guidance, non-binding, I mean, you know, that – it sounds like, well, hey, it's non-binding. What's, what's the point of any of this if it's non-binding? So maybe you could share, shed some light on that. Well, first of all, it brings up an interesting irony, um, Sean, and that is that all guidance is guidance. All guidance is inherently non-binding. So one could easily argue that it's almost an oxymoron to put non-binding in this at all because that should be assumed by everybody, right? So nothing in any guidance is binding. But simply put, what does non-binding what does non-binding mean? It means that you don't have to do it. Uh, but remember, that, run, that street runs in two directions, Sean. So it's not binding on the FDA, uh, but it's also not binding on the company. Right. The manufacturer is not required to follow the FDA's feedback. That's, after all, the definition of non-binding. You can use an alternative approach if you think it's justified. Um, but I would not wait until the next inspection to do that to, and then to find out that you're not um, following you know, FDA's suggestion. I would go back to them as a follow-up, which this particular guidance doesn't address, but we could easily do it. It's another reason why I call this a pre-sub for 43s. Say, we appreciate your feedback. However, your feedback is not appropriate in our particular situation, and here are all the reasons why, and here is what is appropriate in our situation, and here is all the reasons why. In other words, Sean, just because FDA asks you to do something doesn't necessarily mean that you have to do it, but if you're not going to do it, then you have to provide a justification and you have to provide you know, a, a rationale as to what you're going to do to say to, instead. And then the last point that I'll make um, very briefly, Sean, is something I've learned from my wife, and that is you have to pick your battles. Some <laughs> things are worth fighting over and other things are not. 
So if this is, I've been involved in many, many situations where what FDA is asking me to do, I think as a professional biomedical engineer is totally unnecessary. However, if it's something that I can do in a short period of time for just a, a little bit of money, I will often say to the company, you know what, I don't think we need to do this. But quite frankly, it's not worth fighting over because we can do it in a short time for a little bucks. Let's save, let's save our political capital for a battle worth fighting. Right. On the other hand, I've been involved in situations where FDA asks us to do something that I, as a professional biomedical engineer, think we do not have to do. And if it's something that's going to take a lot of time and money, I will push back hard on the agency and say, you know what, we appreciate your, your suggestion, but it's not appropriate for all of these reasons. And instead, here's what we're going to do, and here's why it's, it's appropriate. Does that make sense, Sean? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, pick, especially picking your battles. That's definitely one that rings true with, I'm sure, more than a few of us, including myself. So, I guess um, most people that are married probably have learned that. <laughs> if, yeah. Uh, so, so, and you kind of alluded to this uh, uh, before, um, you know, th this is a new guidance document that's, that's been put out earlier this year. Uh, but you kind of hinted uh, it's not really so new. So uh, what's, is, you know, what's new, what's not? You know, give us, give us the, the rundown. Well, good question, Sean. So the guidance itself is new, but this concept, this process is absolutely not. Discussing plans for responding to a 43 finding has always been an option to companies, and it's always been something that I've recommended to companies in the past. In other words, take this to the FDA prophylactically um, and make sure you get into agreement. Don't wait until uh, a year or two years later when you have your next inspection and the inspector comes in and sees the changes and gives you another 483 because for whatever reason they don't think that the changes were appropriate. They don't think that they sufficiently addressed the concern. So companies always have that. Um, uh, it's just that this new program, if you will, simply formalizes this process. This is exactly why, Sean, I call this a pre-sub for 483s. Because right. really, it's not a new process. It's, it's, FDA could have accomplished the same thing, and I actually have suggested this to the FDA in, in the past. Why don't you just create a new, a, uh, a new version of the pre-sub process? Most of our audience is familiar with the pre-sub. A new version of the pre-sub that would specifically address manufacturing inspection. So, so um, fundamentally, this is nothing different than a pre-sub. It's just that we're not calling it a pre-sub. Okay, great. Um, so my next question is is an item that you've you've you know you've kind of alluded to, you've danced around, you've but now I'm asking you to just spell it out simply. Uh, you know, if a, if if a manufacturer chooses not to follow uh, the FDA recommendation, you know what what's what's the next step? What's the what's the outcome of that decision? Yeah, it's a great question, Sean, and this is where I differ strongly with so many of my regulatory colleagues because they basically say to the company, you have to do whatever it is that FDA asks you to do, and that's simply not the case. In fact, FDA cannot tell you what to do. They can make suggestions. They can make recommendations, but let me explain it this way, Sean. When FDA makes a suggestion or a recommendation, that's nothing more than code speak for FDA saying we, in, we expect that you're going to do it this way, 
unless we hear back from you to the contrary. You know, right. I, I, sh- I, I explain the process, and I go through this all the time. FDA makes a suggestion that we evaluate their suggestion. If their suggestion makes sense, then by all means we should implement it. But if it doesn't make sense, or if we think we have a better solution, we go back to the FDA and say, we appreciate your suggestion, but it's not appropriate, and here's why, and here's what we're going to do instead. Right? right. So, so, so that's this process, and this whole concept of non-binding feedback shouldn't scare people. You know, I get questions from companies, well, if we do this, does that mean that we're not going to have another problem in the future? Well, FDA and the guidance is quite clear that implementing their solution doesn't ne- or your solution does not necessarily prevent you from getting another 4A3 in the future. And I strongly agree with that because we can't make um, broad uh, generalizations. I think you can greatly reduce the likelihood of having another 483, another um, uh, problem in the future, but you can't eliminate it because there's just too many variables that are involved. Right, right. That that makes sense. Um, all right. So now I know you 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 know you're uh, you're adverse to the regulatory absolute. So I'm going to put a time time <laughs> absolute on you for this for this next one. Before we wrap up. You know, this is two parts. We spend a lot of information. Uh, can you just give us the most important uh, takeaways from this new guidance from the FDA and really kind of what, what the listeners really need the most to either get out of it or pay attention to? I think it's a great way to end this two-part discussion, Sean. And even though you did not give me a specific time limit, I'll do this <laughs> as quickly as, as, as I can. This is a recap from both uh, part one as well as uh, part two of our discussion. So first and foremost, you should always do what makes sense. And when I say makes sense, makes sense from a biology and engineering perspective. Don't begin with the regulation. I think that's a huge mistake. If a company can convince me as a professional biomedical engineer what they're doing or what they're proposing makes sense from a biology or an engineering perspective, then I say to them, don't worry about the regulation. We'll figure out how to make the regulation work. So takeaway number one, always do what the biology and the engineering uh, dictates to do. Recommendation number two, I don't know about you, Sean, I was a former Boy Scout many, many years ago, in fact, as a former Eagle Scout, the Boy Scout motto, be prepared. And be prepared not just to defend what you're doing and justify what you're doing, but also what you're not doing and why you're not doing it. Most in the audience, Sean, are familiar with the concept of a mock audit. I spend some of my time going into companies and doing uh, mock audits. It's not something that I do all the time, but some of my time. But if somebody comes in and does a mock audit and basically tells you, hey, you're doing a great job and you know, uh, wave the flag and everything, with all due respect, they're not doing their job. Right. Because uh, they they need to be very very critical. It's the it's uh, for those in the audience that are familiar with the design control, Sean. It's the design control equivalent to an independent reviewer. So I'm a huge fan of having somebody come in, ideally somebody independent, not part of your own organization, with no skin in the game, so to speak, and really kick the tires. In other words, talking about the 
um, the changes, you know, based on this 483. Ask somebody like me to come in and say, hey, here's the uh, 483 observational finding that we got from the FDA. Here's our proposed solution. Uh, evaluate the solution and tell us whether you think this is adequate. I think that makes an awful lot of sense. At the end of the day, Sean, everybody has to remember that the manufacturer is ultimately responsible. It's, you know, not the FDA or anybody else, it's the manufacturer. So will this new guidance, will this uh, quote-unquote new process ultimately improve the efficiency of this process? Possibly. I think the solution to most problems is more communication, not less. So I'm in favor of anything that's going to uh, foster more communication between companies and the, and the agency. But one of my fears, Sean, and I see this in the pre-sub process all the time, it's probably going to lead to more communication, but it's not going to lead to more real communication. It's going to lead to more what I like to call sanitized communication. Right. And one thing I've learned about playing this game, uh, in part from being married, but also um, as a regulatory consultant, just because two people are talking doesn't mean that they're communicating. I want to create an environment where we can honestly and openly communicate, and that doesn't always happen. Right. So those are just sort of uh, a few of the, the final thoughts that I had to, to wrap this up, Sean. Um, anything else that you'd like to add? Yeah, just uh, well, one one thing, just in your final thoughts uh, regarding the mock audit. Now you said those are some things that you participate in. Just to clarify, as a regulatory consultant, you would not serve on a, or you would not conduct a mock audit for a company where you're also the regulatory consultant. Those would those would be two separate roles, correct? Uh, usually so. That's the case. Uh, there, there could potentially be a conflict of interest there, obviously. I have done it in the past, the way that you can sometimes separate those things. If I'm a regulatory consultant for their regulatory strategy, for example, helping the company get you know, their device uh, onto the market through a 510K or PMA or de novo or whatever it is, and then they come in and ask me more on the quality slash manufacturing side, hey, will you come in and kind of kick the tires and look at our quality system and look at our manufacturing process? I don't see there to be uh, a conflict of interest there. But on the other hand, if somebody were to come in and, uh, sorry, if a company were to invite me to come in and ask me to help them craft a response to a 483 observation that this guidance, you know, allows us to do, and then ask me to critique that same response, that might be a little bit of a conflict because that would be like me uh, asking me to critique my own child. Uh, right. so, so there can be a potential conflict, but it's not something that I really worry about. Okay, and finally, the, I'm giving you a hard, a hard stop, 20 seconds. Is this, is this uh, do we need this guidance? Yeah, great question. So here's what I would say, Sean. For those people who know what the heck they're doing and who know how to play this game, I would say absolutely not. There's absolutely nothing new here. Regrettably, though, Sean, for everybody else, that doesn't know what they're doing and have not, don't know how to play this game, they probably do. And that's probably the reason why FDA created the guidance, not for those of us that really know what we're doing, but for those of us that don't. Right. Well, another great session. Appreciate all the information and all the insights. As always, uh, like to thank Mike for joining me today and like to thank you for, for tuning in and listening. We'll be back with another episode of Mike on MedTech uh, soon. Thanks a lot.
Thank you.